And welcome to the Deep Dive Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Nick Espinoza, and we're going to be talking about all things cybersecurity, cyber warfare, and technology related. And I think we're one of the only ones out there that's doing that right now. If you'd like to be part of the radio show in any way, shape, or form, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can send us an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. We have an action-packed show as always. There's always a lot to cover, so stick around with us as we deep dive into a topic and we catch up on everything else. So without further ado, let's begin. And we've got a great week for you this week. Our deep dive is basically entitled, Why Twitter Will Die. Now, this is coming from an article that I published on November 9th on Smirconish.com about all the reasons why I think Twitter is going to go down the hill and die. And as we are sitting here about a week after or so, me writing that article, I think Elon Musk is proving me right. And it's not just him. There's other factors as well. So stick around for that. But as always, we're going to start with the news. And in Amazon news, I predict, this is my prediction, that Amazon is going to fire thousands of their workers. Now, here's here's what's going on, and hear me out here. This is, like I said, this is my prediction, uh, just FYI, and I thought... Basically, I thought about this after reading a TechCrunch article by Brian Heater that talked about something entirely different. And so here's what this is. The TechCrunch article was entitled, Amazon Debuts Sparrow, a new bin packing robot arm. And now you know where I'm going with this. Now, these bin moving robots designed by Kiva Systems that are owned by Amazon will form the foundation of Amazon's warehouse robotics, uh, basically, a, essentially a decade after they acquired Kiva. Now, there's a reason for example, that the recently announced fully autonomous Proteus robot effectively looks like a green Seahawks green per the robotics VP version of one of those systems. Over the years, uh, basically, Amazon has brought in the scope of its warehouse bots. Hundreds of thousands of them now occupy fulfillment centers across the United States. So as one might imagine, robot arms are a big piece of that puzzle. The robot known as Robin, which debuted 18 months ago, and Cardinal, which rolls out uh, basically later this year, are two of the most prominent examples, both designed to move packages and send them on their way inside the warehouse. Cardinal is effectively an update to Robin that is able to pack boxes full of packages. There are currently around 1,000 Robin units deployed in Amazon warehouses, which is a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of warehouses Amazon has and their space that those things have. They're massive. Now, in an event held in Westboro, Massachusetts Robotics Center, about 40 minutes from downtown Boston, the company now added a third robot to the mix known as Sparrow. Now, this new arm is a more sophisticated take on the company's existing robotic arms, adding the ability to pick and place specific objects in bins. The computers, uh, the arm's computer vision and AI are capable of identifying and moving millions of items, according to the company. So, rather than picking up only the 15 or so different packages uh, types from previous robots, Sparrow is designed to pick up items directly. The variety of basically size, shape, and material present a number of different challenges for robotics, building a design, uh, a system rather, designed to pick basically up these objects at high speeds. And so you see where I'm going with this here. They are going to start ditching uh, Amazon employees by virtue of this. And think about it. uh, You know, they've had problems, uh, you know, with their workers in the sense that the workers want a living wage, that the workers are trying to unionize, which is obviously a huge Amazon, uh, a woe for Amazon, I should say, not to mention, uh, you know, the smear campaign the optics of everything but robots don't complain 
Robots don't take time off. Robots don't need salaries. Once you own a robot, the robot just keeps on working. So if you've got 500 employees in a, a, you know, a warehouse, maybe now you need 10 just to make sure that the robots are not breaking down and they're being repaired and, and maintained. And so what happens to the other 490 employees? And this is a problem that we are seeing society wide. Fast food restaurants like, you know, McDonald's are pioneering, uh, you know, fast food robots. So you don't have to have somebody, you know, flipping burgers or, or you know, doing the fries. If everything is automated, you can talk to an AI at the drive through The robot will do everything, package it up. It'll be a perfect order. It won't miss anything. Uh, you know, there you go. Now you're getting your food. Now you have, you're reducing that error. You know, it's like the same with like DoorDash. You know what I mean? You order something on DoorDash and then it shows up and, oh my God, they forgot to pack the fries or, you know, whatever it is. And now you've got to go complain. This is what we're talking about. But what happens when we have all of this labor that really doesn't have a skill? Do we enable universal basic income? Do we give free training and education into other things like robotics maintenance? But that only goes so far because you don't need 500 people to deal with 500 robots. So these are societal-wide problems that we are going to have to address, we're going to have to think about. And so if you're thinking about this, especially if you've got kids that are coming up that you know they gain experience going and working at the McDonald's of the world or the ice cream shops of the world or the warehouses of the world to essentially go on to, to big things, if that's going away, now what? And we can't all be YouTube influencers. That's not the way to run an economy. So so obviously this is a huge issue. Uh, I'd love to hear thoughts on this one as well, because I don't think there is an easy answer. I think it may come down to something like a universal basic income, because we're not stopping having babies we keep growing the population, and and here we are. So I'm curious to see what's going to happen there. But that is your interesting Amazon news of the week, and I really do think they're going to start firing their staff uh, in those warehouses sooner than later as these robots just take over more and more. And in Apple news, Apple is getting sued due to privacy. And this just kills me. Apple has this notorious reputation for marketing how private they are. And I have done article after article, video after video, uh, you know, talked about it here on, uh, you know, on the radio as well as podcast. And Apple, it does never lives up to the hype. They never live up to their hype. So this is coming from Gizmodo, and here's what's going on. Apple is facing a class action lawsuit for allegedly harvesting your iPhone data even when the company's own privacy settings promise not to. Now, the suit was filed about a week or two ago Thursday in California federal court, and it comes days after Gizmodo exclusively reported on research into how multiple iPhone apps were sending Apple Analytics data regardless of whether your iPhone Analytics privacy setting was turned on or off. Off. Now, this problem was spotted by two independent researchers from a software company called Misc, who found that the app, the Apple App Store, sends the company exhaustive information about nearly everything a user does in the app, despite the privacy setting iPhone analytics is that setting which claims to, quote, disable the sharing of device analytics altogether, end quote, when switched off. Now, Gizmodo asked the researchers to run additional tests on other iPhone apps, including Apple Music, Apple TV, Apple Books, and Apple Stocks. The researchers found that the problem persists across most 
of Apple's suite of built-in iPhone apps. Now, the lawsuit accuses Apple of violating the California Invasion of Privacy Act. And I quote, Privacy is one of the main issues that Apple uses to set its products apart from its competitors, end quote. That is according to the plaintiff, Elliot Liebman, in the lawsuit, according to, uh, or basically where you can read the lawsuit on Bloomberg Law. Quote, but Apple's privacy guarantees are completely illusory. End quote. Now, the company has plastered billboards across the country that basically say privacy. That's iPhone. And that is the most ridiculous thing. I remember years ago, before the pandemic, at one of the big conferences in Las Vegas, I think it was CES, they built, they bought a massive billboard that basically says what, what goes on in your iPhone stays in your iPhone. Basically, like, you know, uh, ripping off the Las Vegas, uh, the Las Vegas motto of what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. But that was demonstrably false. I wrote an article about that, uh, you know, when that happened. Uh, they have never lived up to this. So this is obviously a huge thing. Now, as seen in a video posted on the MISC YouTube channel, the App Store appears to harvest information about your activity in real time, including what you tap on, which apps you search for, what ads you see, and how you found a given app and how long you've been looking at that app's page, meaning, oh, I'm interested in this app, you're lingering, you're reading about it, and then so maybe you're looking for a competitor, they're getting all of this information regardless if you opt out of this or not. Now, Apple's privacy settings make explicit promises to shut off that kind of tracking, but in test, turning the iPhone analytics setting off had no evident effect on data collection, nor did any of the iPhone's other built-in settings meant to protect your privacy from Apple's data collection. Now, MISC's tests on the App Store found that Apple receives that data along with details that can identify you and your device, including specific ID numbers, what kind of phone you're using, your screen resolution, your keyboard languages, and how you're connected to the internet. This is the kind of information that is commonly used as device uh, fingerprinting, meaning, oh, well, we don't have your name, but there are so many unique characteristics about your phone, your battery, how you have it set up, the IDs in it, etc., that then link you to your name, so now you're no longer anonymous. Now, when researchers looked at other iPhone apps at Gizmodo's request, they found that many of these behave similarly. While the health and wallet apps didn't collect analytics data, Apple Music, TV, books, the iTunes Store, stocks all did. The stocks app even shared data, including your list of watch stocks, the name of the stocks that you viewed or searched for, and the timestamps when you did it, as well as a record of any news articles articles you saw in the app as well. This is absolutely insane. And so they are collecting all of this information on you. You can't say you haven't been told. And if you're one of those people that's like, meh, eh, meh, we can't get away from it. It just is what it is. That's not the right attitude to have. You should be complaining. You know, I shouldn't be the only one. I'm, I'm informing you of these. And if you're shrugging your shoulders, no, no, right, your congressman or whatever. I don't know, but we have to figure out something. Apple is not living up to the hype uh, at all. So understand that, that you can't use a thing. Well, I have an iPhone, so I'll never get hacked. That's that's total crap. I have an iPhone. I'm totally private. That is total crap as well. There are other more secure uh, platforms out there. Many of them are based off of variants of the Android operating system, the largest competitor to iPhone. And there you go. So obviously, that's a huge thing. And here we are. And in Facebook news, Facebook is once again violating children's privacy. Now, this is coming from GovTech. I thought this was really interesting. And here's what's going on. Heads up, parents. 
of kids in school. The American Educational Research Association, or ARIA, um, in a news release about a week or two ago, revealed the results of a study saying that social media posts by schools could be compromising the privacy of their students. Now, according to the study, schools across the country have shared nearly 5 million posts that include identifiable images of students, with some 726,000 of those posts identifying kids by their full names, potentially putting the students' privacy at risk. Now, from 2005 to 2020, the time frame of the study examining publicly accessible posts on Facebook by all public schools and school districts across the United States, schools published roughly 18 million posts with the frequency of that increasing annually. Now, the news release said about 13.9 million of those 18 million posts included images of people at any age, leading researchers to estimate that 4.9 million had identifiable images of students. Now, obviously, this will be a major concern as the technology continues to improve, meaning cameras get sharper, you know, facial recognition gets better, and on and on. And according to uh, the co-author of the study, Joshua Rosenberg, and I quote, it is likely that the photos are being accessed by a range of actors, including government agencies, predictive policing, companies, and those with nefarious intent, uh, end quote, aka the child predators of the world as well. Now, Rosenberg is an assistant professor of STEM at the University of of Tennessee Knoxville and he said this in a public statement and I quote again the threat to privacy will continue to grow perhaps quickly due to expanding facial recognition technology and yes this is absolutely a huge problem that we are seeing now if you didn't know a lot of school districts have privacy policies where parents can go to the district whether it's the school or the superintendent and say I want to opt my children out meaning if there is a photo with my child uh, you know in it in school it will not go on Facebook or Twitter or anything else that can be publicly accessible. Remember, it's up to parents to basically shepherd their kids through the age of lack of privacy. And if you are sitting there, you know, putting stuff out on the Facebook, that's a huge problem. Now, I also understand that there's a difference between you having, let's say, a private family page on Facebook and posting photos there versus something that's public. If I can browse to your kid's school wherever you are, whatever affiliate you're listening to me on, uh, and basically get access and say, oh, yeah, there's, you know, there, hey, my listener's kid goes to blah, blah, blah elementary school and whatever market you're in. This is what we're talking about. And so make sure you're locking those things down. But also understand it's Facebook. So if even if you have that private one, I may not be able to see your private Facebook account and the photos that you're posting of Junior and everything else. But Facebook and thousands of their employees do and their artificial intelligence uh, database uh, does as well. Their facial recognition database does. Law enforcement has access to that. So understand you're feeding the beast. But remember, you can opt your kids out of all of those things. You can basically say, I don't want anything publicly on social media without my consent. And there you go. So that is your Facebook privacy violating news of the week. And make sure you're opting your kids out of anything public. Otherwise, you could potentially be violating their privacy. Well, you are violating their privacy. And that is never, never a good thing. And in TikTok news, TikTok was going to track quote-unquote specific Americans. Now, this is just some excellent reporting coming out of Forbes. Full disclosure, um, I also publish on Forbes as well. But this is coming from Emily Baker White. And here's what's going on. A Chinese 
based team at TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, who's out of Beijing, China, was planning to use TikTok, the app itself, to monitor the personal location of some specific American citizens, according to materials reviewed by Forbes. Now, the team behind the monitoring project, ByteDance's internal audit and risk control department, is led by Beijing-based executive Song Yi, who reports directly to ByteDance co-founder and CEO Rubo Liang. Now, the company primarily conducts investigations into potential misconduct by current and former ByteDance employees, but in at least two cases, the internal audit team also planned to collect TikTok data about the location of a U.S. citizen who had never had employment or any type of relationship like that with the company, according to these materials. Now, it is unclear from the materials whether data about these Americans was actually collected. However, the plan was for a Beijing-based ByteDance team to obtain location data from U.S. users. Again, this flies in the face of everything that U.S. TikTok executives told the U.S. Congress a couple of years ago on basically this, this just horrible, horrible app. So, TikTok spokesperson Maureen Shanahan said that TikTok collects approximate location information based on users' IP addresses too, and I quote, among other things, help show relevant content and ads to users, comply with applicable laws, and detect and prevent fraud and inauthentic behavior, end quote. But the material re- material reviewed by Forbes indicates that ByteDance's internal audit team was planning to use this information to surveil individual American citizens, not to target ads or for any of the other states purposes. Forbes did not, for the record, disclose the nature and purpose of the planned surveillance referenced in the materials in order to protect sources. TikTok, for example, excuse me, TikTok and ByteDance did not answer questions about whether the internal audit had specifically targeted any members of the U.S. government, activists, public figures, or journalists. And this is just really underscores the problems that I have with TikTok, aside from the fact, and I've mentioned this ad nauseum, that there are Chinese laws in the books that basically say, if you are a Chinese company with information on foreign citizens, aka uh, Americans or anybody else, by law, you have to turn those over to the Chinese government. We had a whistleblower come out from TikTok. I, I did this on the did a whole segment on the radio on this as well, that basically they have actual recordings of American TikTok employees saying, yeah, we got to go talk to somebody in China because the Chinese like overlords, the managers, are the ones that actually have access to the customer data. They admitted that they're using Oracle's infrastructure to store information here and replicating it to Singapore, but there's no reason why all of this couldn't be back-ended. And we literally have TikTok employees on the record, you know, in meetings saying, yes, we, you know, the Chinese uh, employees have access to this. This, again, flies in the face of what their executives told told uh, essentially the Congress in uh, you know the U.S. Congress a couple of years ago. So if you're using TikTok, understand it's a Chinese surveillance app first. Uh, you know, that is not some tinfoil hat conspiracy. This has been proven time. And again, the app itself has been reverse engineered. Just stop using it. Just stop using it. That's all I'm going to say. Ugh, that was your TikTok news of the week. And in World Cup news, the World Cup is about to start, or you might be listening to me and it already has started. But either way, we're at the very beginning of this whole thing. And the apps that are associated with this World Cup in Qatar are privacy nightmares. Now, here's what's going on. Privacy and data security experts are raising the alarm over two official apps required to attend World Cup festivities. The first one, known as a 
Edirats, Edirats, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is a COVID-19 tracking system. The other one, Haya, is an app that allows or not fans entrance to stadiums, schedule viewing, and free public transportation. But basically, both of these apps are spyware. So let's start with Edoraz. I believe I'm, again, pronouncing that correctly, which is used in Qatar already. It's asking users to allow remote access to pictures and videos, make unprompted calls from your phone, and read or modify your device data. Meanwhile, Haya's permissions include full network access and unrestricted access to personal data. It also prevents the device from going to in, into sleep mode and views the phone's network's locations. Both apps are tracking your location as well. And so, according to Oyvind Vyasin, he's the head of security at the Norwegian Broadcasting Corporation, in an interview, because they're all heading over there for this, summed it up best, and I quote, When you download these two apps, you accept the terms stated in the contract, and those terms are very generous. You essentially hand over all the information in your phone. You give people the, uh, you give the people who control the apps the ability to read and change things and tweak it. They also get the opportunity to retrieve information from other apps if they have the capacity to do so, and we believe they do. It is not my job to give travel advice, but personally, I would never bring my mobile phone on a visit to Cutter. Now, that said, this has been a complete disappointment to me. And I'm just going to get personal here for a second. I grew up watching the World Cup with my father. I absolutely love it every four years. I'm not really a sports person, uh, you know, a, a, at all. But but every four years, I become basically a, a FIFA junkie, a soccer junkie. And I really, really enjoy the World Cup. It's just amazing. I remember going to it was here in the 90s, you know, with my father and just, just had a great time. But Here's the thing. Cutter is basically being boycotted by a lot of people. They got this basically through corrupt means, bribing FIFA. FIFA went on trial and was found guilty uh, you know, of bribery back in, I want to say, 2015, 2016. On top of this, there are huge human rights violations in Qatar. Uh, they essentially shipped in a whole bunch of cheap labor from Southeast Asia, seized their passports, and basically put them into indentured servitude to build these massive stadiums because Qatar did not have the infrastructure. They didn't even have a football league until something like 5, 10 years ago when they started building one in anticipation of this, uh, of hosting the World Cup. And so they have a death rate of about three to 4,000 workers every year and just the atrocious heat you know, in the deserts of Qatar as they are building these stadiums around Doha and other places. So this has been just a huge disappointment. On top of it, you're now looking at essentially having surveillance apps on your phone that can retrieve other information and all of that uh, you know, from a government that has been known to spy. And on top of this, you're going to have a whole slew of people that are excitedly going to Qatar to watch the World Cup that do not understand the laws or customs of that Islamic State. And by virtue of that, there are going to be people that are going to be running afoul of this. And the fines and penalties in Qatar are very harsh, up to potentially beatings, expulsions, even execution in some cases. So if you're going, for example, with your girlfriend or boyfriend, you're not sleeping in the same room. They do not allow those kinds of things there. Not to mention alcohol consumption is very limited, other things as well. So if you're going to Qatar, uh, you know, and you're listening to this and you happen to catch this as you're packing your plane, you know, I, I packing for the plane, I would highly recommend bringing a burner phone. If I was going there for this and I'm not, and I wanted to go to the 2022 uh, World Cup, but obviously I, I'm not because I'm, there's no way I'm going to Qatar and supporting this. But 
I say all of that to say that if you're going there, I would highly recommend you bring a burner phone. You know, if you have to have a smartphone, wipe it out, put a dummy account, uh, only put those most essential and necessary contacts on there for an emergency, like an emergency contact back home, and then install these apps. They will get no information on you outside of tracking your location at a regular time, but they're not harvesting any of your apps, your sensitive data, your address books, your email, all those kinds of things. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that at all. Uh, you know, you can bring a laptop, make sure it's fully encrypted, have it on there, uh, you know, use a VPN and a firewall on it if you need to get access to other things. But don't walk around with your personal mobile phone and, phone and cutter. They're going to get all of your information, and that should terrify anybody that is heading there. And so that is your World Cup news of the week. I, and I, if you love the World Cup as much as I love the World Cup, I mean, I you know you can still root for my team, but I just can't support. I just cannot support this round. And I wasn't a big fan that four years ago they had it in Russia either because that was why. But anyway, here we are. That is your World Cup news of the week. And before we head over to the next segment, I wanted to let you know, and I've done this in a couple of shows, and I keep being reminded to do this, and I always forget. Uh, basically, if you didn't know, I put out content on a daily basis, not just here on the radio where you're listening to me, but actually I put it quite a lot of places, daily podcasts and videos on some of the latest trends, technology, cybersecurity, privacy, all these kinds of things I keep day to day. And some of the segments that I do for my news section or even my breaches of the week every Sunday gets translated into this show. But I do this as essentially a labor of love. You know, I don't have any kind of monetization anywhere. I just do it to keep people informed and to keep everybody interested. But you can find me uh, basically on Twitter or Facebook at slash Nick AESP or on LinkedIn and YouTube at slash Nick Espinoza. And please, Follow me. I'd love to hear. I'd love to basically get a shout out from you and, and you know, send me a message or whatever it is. Uh, but I do content daily and I hope you guys enjoy it. And so that is my quick blurb. And you're listening to Nick Espinosa of the Deep Dive Radio Show, a syndicated radio show here in podcast form on SoundCloud. And make sure to check your local listings so you can catch it on a radio station near you. And now for breaches of the week. And if you have a data breach to report that's local to you or the major news might have missed it, please, by all means, send it to me. And I'm glad to give you a shout out and include it in the radio show and possibly a daily video. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter and uh, Facebook at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can uh, email questions at securityfanatics.com. Again, that's questions at securityfanatics.com. And I'm more than happy to include your data breach and give you a shout out on the air. With that, Let's begin. And this week in data breaches, as always, was just off the rails. But we have some really interesting things going on here. And we're going to talk about quite a lot of everything. But before we begin, as always, I want to thank the people that sent me these data breaches, or a lot of them anyway. It always helps me out. And that would be Jay Dance, Chris Fellon, Aaron Lax, Jacqueline Wolf. And Barrett Peterson, thank you so much. And if you have a tip for me, please send it my way. Questions at securityfanatics.com. And I'm more than happy to answer and say thank you here online, or I should say on the air in this case. Moving on, let's start with Chile because their Atacama Large Millimeter Array, which is one of the world's largest astronomical observatories, was impacted by a cyber attack last month in October. But it did not affect the observatory scientific data and antennas, but it did result in 
unrestricted email service use and space observation suspensions. And that is according to the record, the publication. So hopefully Chile's Atacama Large Millimeter Array is back online and in full force. Moving on, let's talk about the massive French defense and technology group known as Thales. This is actually an update. And basically, um, they released uh, data um, or basically they said about a week ago or so that data relating to Thales had been released on a publication platform via the hacker group known as Lockbit 3.0. Basically, this is confirming media reports. Lockbit had claimed that they had done this, uh, you know, and this was initially de- uh, basically denied. Now, this data was released on November 10th and Thales, which provides advanced technologies in defense, aeronautics, space, transport and digital security, basically confirmed that quote at this stage. Thales is able to confirm that there has been no intrusion of its IT systems. Uh, basically, they're saying that essentially they've excised this. Now, since we track data breaches here for my day job, I went to Lockbit's site directly, and sure enough, Thales' information is published on Lockbit 3.0's dark website. I saw that myself, so obviously that's a huge problem. So if you've got anything to do with Thales, heads up to you. Moving on, let's go to the country of Denmark because their rail system, their train system went down. Now, according to Danish broadcaster DR, all trains operated by DSB, this is the largest train operating uh, company in the country, came to a standstill about a week ago Saturday morning and could not resume their journey for several hours. This was actually the result of a security incident at Supeo. Now, Supeo is a Danish company that provides enterprise asset management solutions to railway companies, transportation infrastructure operators, and public passenger authorities as well. Supeo may have been targeted in a ransomware attack, but the company has not shared information. But we know that DSB uh, basically told Reuters that it was an economic crime. So that is absolutely crazy. But the rail system in Denmark went down as a result of a cyber attack. Moving on, let's talk about Australia because we are worldwide this week. We're talking about MetaBank. Uh, This is an update uh, basically of them. The ransomware group with ties to the notorious Russian-speaking Our Evil Gang began publishing stolen records about a week ago or so, including customer names, birth date, passport numbers, and information on medical claims. Now, this comes after MetaBank said it would not pay the ransom demand, saying, quote, we believe there is only a limited chance of paying a ransom would ensure the return of our customers' data and prevent it from being published. Well, publish, they did, because the cyber criminals selectively separated the first sample they released of Australian breach victims into naughty and good lists, with the former including numerical diagnosis codes that appear to link victims to drug addiction, alcohol abuse, and HIV. So for example, one of these codes is F122, which is the worldwide code uh, for cannabis dependence, meaning you are hooked on weed and MetaBank knows it, and now the world does, thanks to this dark web breach. So obviously, these things are so, so damaging. If you are caught up in a data breach, it is never a fun thing. This is why we all need credit monitoring in our lives at this point. We just cannot escape it. I don't care where you are or what country you need it. Moving on, let's head over to Germany and talk about Continental. This is the automotive giant. You may have some of their tires on your car. Lockbit also claimed responsibility for a cyber attack against Continental. And here we are. And so this obviously is a huge, huge issue on top of this. The deadline for releasing that data from Continental has already passed. Since I was already on Lockbit's site looking at the Thales information, I went looking for Continental. And sure enough, Continental's information has also been published 
published on Lockbit's site. A huge problem. Moving on, let's talk about TransUnion. Yes, the credit agency and competitor to Equifax, they just sent letters to consumers alerting them to a recent data breach that compromised a wide array of their personal and financial information. Now, on Monday, about a week ago, Monday or so from when you're listening to this, TransUnion reported this data breach to the Massachusetts Attorney General. We don't know how many people were involved, but this is great because if you've ever gotten a credit card or rent or a mortgage or a loan or anything like that, odds are TransUnion has your information as it's one of those places that is commonly used for credit checks. That's another major problem. Moving on. Let's talk about Hartnell College. They just got hit with a ransomware attack. Now, they didn't say what kind of personal information was accessed, if it was students or staff or whatever. Basically, they're looking into this right now, but this is all we know. This happened on October 2nd, so this is a while ago. But if you have anything to do with Hartnell College, heads up. Moving on, let's talk about Apprentice Information Systems uh, for my affiliates that are listening, uh, uh, basically listening on my affiliates in the state of Arkansas. Uh, Apprentice Information Systems is basically a computer services company that supports more than half of all of Arkansas's counties, basically half the state, and they got hit, and so now counties are starting to uh, to declare. So if you are in Oachita County in Arkansas, heads up to you. Moving on, let's talk about the Louisiana Department of Public Safety and Corrections because they reported a third-party data breach that impacted 85,466 inmates who received off-site medical care during their incarceration between January of 2013 through July of this year. Now, this originated at Correct Care, a third-party health administrator under contract with the department to process medical claims. And on July 6th, Correct Care discovered that two of its file directories containing protected health information, quote, inadvertently exposed to the public internet. So heads up to you if you've been incarcerated in Louisiana between January of 2013 and this year, you may be at some point when you're released, if you're listening to this in prison, entitled to compensation and on and on and on. It's absolutely crazy this week. Let's talk about Camping World and Good Sam, because on November 7th, the CWGS group that owns Camping World and Good Sam, basically, um, they filed a report with the Massachusetts Attorney General after they confirmed they had an unauthorized party uh, gain access to sensitive consumer information. Now, what we are talking about here are names, dates of birth, social security numbers, driver's license numbers, government ID, tax ID, financial account numbers, credit and debit cards, digital electronic signatures, usernames and passwords, etc., etc. So this is employees and consumers as well. Uh, So basically, if you have anything to do with Camping World or Good Sam or the CWGS group, heads up to you. Uh, Moving on, let's talk about Salud Family Health. They reported a data breach in Montana after they learned that basically they got hit. And we're talking names, social security numbers, driver's license numbers, state IDs, card numbers, financial account information, credit card numbers, passport numbers, medical treatment and diagnosis information, health insurance information, biometric data, usernames and passwords, and Basically, if you've ever looked at Salud Family Health or blinked at them, they've got that information. So heads up to you if uh, you have been affected by them. Moving on. Let's talk about United Veterinary Care, because on November 3rd of this year, they reported a data breach with the Massachusetts Attorney General's office after the company discovered the personal computer information basically was compromised, or personal consumer information, excuse me, was compromised. And according to United Veterinary Care, the breach resulted in certain consumer names, social security numbers, and financial account information being compromised. Recently, they sent out data breach letters to all affected parties. So heads up, United 
United Veterinary Care customers or consumers. And finally, and we have two finalies for you here. Now, our deep dive is going to be on Twitter, but we need to talk about Twitter in terms of breaches of the week. And so I am going to talk about some things here that I will not cover or I'll try not to cover in the deep dive to make this dovetail as you this will reinforce everything that I'm talking about in that segment. But here's what's going on. Elon Musk's turbulent Twitter takeover, and again, we'll discuss that in more depth in the next segment, is undercutting the platform's defenses while introducing new security risks and cybersecurity experts fear users and the public will soon suffer consequences. Absolutely, I talk about that, or I rather, I should say, I will be talking about that very soon. Now, between the now-canceled rollout of their new checkmark policy, which they kind of brought back, um, and the exodus of top security staff, Twitter is quickly exposing itself to a deluge of new security risks that could soon basically uh, ramify into the public public sphere. And this is according to basically all of these cyber experts. And I'm going to talk about this, like I said, in more depth, but essentially, uh, you know, impersonating, uh, you know, various entities out there. I'm going to talk about that. And that's one of the biggest problems we have because the, the check mark is considered that trust thing. Now, Twitter is also fast becoming the Wild West, according to most experts as well. Um, they have lost their top security professionals, their chief information security officer, chief privacy officer, chief compliance officer, the head of trust and safety, all resigned about a week ago, basically because of all of these schemes that Musk has. So this is going to be a huge thing. We are going to talk about this more in depth in the next segment when I deep dive in my segment entitled Why Twitter Will die. Now, with that, we have one more finally for you. This is kind of dovetails with the election that we just went through, but this is an interesting one. Because this is uh, basically a Michigan-based firm called Conich. Now, here's what's going on. And I mentioned them a few radio shows back uh, due to some of the woes that they have. But here's what's up. An abrupt reversal. Los Angeles County has dismissed the charges against their chief executive of basically Conich. This is an election software company marking the end of a case that prominent election deniers cited as evidence of foul play in American elections. Now, Eugene Yu, the CEO of the Michigan-based firm Conage, was charged in mid-October with illegally storing the personal information of poll workers on Chinese servers, obviously a violation of its contract with L.A. County in California. Conage has provided its poll chief software to cities and counties across the country, including a $2.9 million contract with Los Angeles County. So this past Wednesday or a week ago Wednesday, as you're listening to this, the district attorney's office said that it had moved to dismiss the case. The judge in L.A. Superior Court granted the motion without prejudice, meaning they, he can basically be retried uh, you know, for this. Now, a spokesperson for the county, Tiffany Blacknell, said in a statement, and I quote, we are concerned about both the pace of the investigation and the potential bias in the presentation and investigation of the evidence. Now, the county did indicate that it hasn't ruled out refiling charges after reviewing the evidence saying that it would assemble or, quote, assemble a new team with significant cybersecurity experience to determine whether any criminal activity occurred. Now, in October, the district attorney's office acknowledged to NPR, this is the publication that I'm cribbing this from, that the investigation began after a tip from Greg Phillips. Now, he's a prominent election denier associated with a controversial group 
group known as True the Vote, which executive produced and provided the basis for the claims in the widely debunked film 2000 Mules. I've I've basically have looked into this and yes, this is so easy to debunk, but here we are. Now, Phillips has said that the group's interest in Connich was spurred in part by information provided by the followers of the far right wing conspiracy QAnon and suggested this was part of a, quote, red Chinese communist uprun against the United States, end quote. Now, Connich and Yu have consistently denied the district attorney's charges, noting true the vote's shabby affiliations and suggesting that basically xenophobia is a driving force behind this original probe. Yu immigrated to the United States from China in the 1980s and became an American citizen in 1997. Now, in September, Connich filed a lawsuit in federal court against true the vote and alleged that the group had hacked Connich's data, defaming the con- the company with a, quote, xenophobic smear campaign. Now, use arrest and controversy surrounding, uh, basically, Connich ahead of those November midterms alarmed the few voting offices across the country that were using Connich's software, worried how the arrest would impact voter confidence in a climate where election security is already the top concern for many. At least four jurisdictions stopped using Connich's software entirely. And so this is a very interesting situation that we have brewing here with with Connich in the sense that, um, you know, as you're looking through this, you've got basically a former Chinese national, now a U.S. citizen, uh, essentially running this. If they were storing or actually it was confirmed that they are storing, uh, you know, work poll worker data in China, that is a huge problem because if it's stored in China, the Chinese government has access to it. That is a law in China that was basically passed in 2017 by the People's Communist Party. And so if you was actually doing that or Connage was actually doing that, that is a massive, massive cybersecurity red flag. So I hope that LA really does hire cybersecurity and forensics experts that have the ability to look at these things and see if this actually happened. Because if it did, that is a huge violation of US privacy, of election integrity, and all of those different things. That's not to say that gave, let's say, the Chinese government or foreign intelligence access into voting machines to change vote totals or anything like that. But if they were able to get into poll workers information or hack into poll workers, maybe they could run an intimidation campaign, gather information that they shouldn't be allowed to gather and all of that. But that would not have affected the vote total because, again, we're not talking about Connage software on voting machines. This is more basically for management of poll workers and other things. So this is a huge thing. I'm going to keep on this. I I think or I predict, uh, you know, and again, I, this is a prediction. My my thought is they will try him again at some point. Uh, they are just waiting for more evidence, and right now they just don't have it. And if they can't find the evidence, they obviously won't uh, won't pursue charges. So there you go. That is your those were I should say your breaches of the week. It was just another crazy week. Thanks to everybody that helped me out there. And let's move on. And you're listening to Nick Espinosa of the Deep Dive Radio Show, a syndicated radio show, here in podcast form on SoundCloud, and make sure to check your local listings so you can catch it on a radio station near you. And now for the Deep Dive segment, where we take a closer and deeper look at a cybersecurity, cyber warfare, or technology issue around us. And if you have any suggestions for a Deep Dive segment or something you'd like me to dive into, you can once again... Find me on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can send an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. That's questions at securityfanatics.com. I am more than happy to take a look at it. And uh, if it meets our standards, we are more than happy to do a deep dive on it. So 
Let's begin. And this week's deep dive is entitled, Why Twitter Will Die. This is an article I wrote on November 9th, so think about all the things that have happened. Now, I'm sure you know that Twitter was recently purchased by Elon Musk. We'll talk about that. Uh, Obviously, it's been in the news all the time, but I think that this platform is going to die. And hear me out here, because what I'm going to basically do is go down my article, because there are points there that I think that everybody is going to miss and not really understand why this is going. Not to mention, I'm going to basically update you on some of the latest news here. This is a huge problem, but Twitter is going away, and here's why. Now, when it comes to Twitter, I've always said of the platform that basically Twitter is where civility goes to die, and I have yet, for the record, to find anybody that disagrees with that assertion. Now, it appears that the platform itself is going to die, and hear me out. Like I said, hear me out. Its impending demise is obviously one part Elon Musk. However, it's also many other parts that Elon Musk now has a say over. And to be clear, Twitter itself could live on for years as a website and an app that people can visit and use, but what will die were the intentions of well-minded people trying to make Twitter into something it could never be. That's a place for open, honest intelligence and rational discussion or debate. If Twitter was a horse, Musk honestly just shot it in the leg with a rather large large gun. So in that vein, let's start with Musk and why the vast majority of us are going to leave that site, ideally for greener pastures, I guess. And at this point, everybody knows, as I mentioned, Elon Musk bought Twitter for $44 billion, and he seems to be blowing through that $44 billion and losing it pretty quickly. However, what many don't know is that there were some rather interesting things going on with this sale, both before and after this purchase. Now, prior to the sale, this rather large transaction almost ended up in court due to disputes. Musk's chief complaint was that Twitter was not being transparent with how many bots there are on the platform. Now, if you don't know what bots are, among other things, they are automated pieces of computer code that have a rather large hand in generating all of the disinformation that users digest regularly on the site. Many of these bots, and we are literally talking about millions of them, using fake Twitter accounts are being run, uh, essentially owned and operated by foreign intelligence agencies. Russia, China, Iran, and other countries have been discovered sowing disinformation into the feeds of millions of Twitter users, whether it's false information about some aspect of the U.S. election that where I think we're all thrilled went very smoothly compared to what we were expecting, or the desire to create doubt in democracy in Hong Kong, which Twitter bots were all over, and on and on and on. These bots are at the center of it all and pushing out information that their masters want the world to consume. So when Musk started publicly speaking about transparency, regarding the population of Twitter, this was actually good news at the time, uh, according to the cybersecurity community. If we could get a peek at just how many bots there were doing whatever it is that they're doing on the platform, we could truly understand how the site performs in terms of information flow to real actual users. Now, if we could understand the bot traffic and the AI or algorithms that promote or demote content to the real users, we had a a serious chance of combating this avalanche of fake news that is helping to create these two realities that we find ourselves in today. And we all have 
<clears throat> probably that relative somewhere that believes that, you know, JFK Jr. is coming back or whatever it is. We all have somebody that is drinking some kind of Kool-Aid, and these bots are the ones that have been pushing it out in droves on Twitter and other platforms. But now that Musk owns Twitter, it's honestly in his best interest to not tell us anything regarding bots, and here's why. Investors and advertisers are nervous due to all the shakeups that Musk has planned or he's already executed. We'll talk about those. On top of that, though, users have been leaving, not a huge mass exodus, uh, but they've been leaving and looking for other platforms to adopt. Now, to stem that tide, Musk wrote an open letter to advertisers, meaning those companies that actually generate the actual cash that Twitter makes, saying how he wants to bring balance to social media and have Twitter be this fair and open town hall. And that may be well and good, but he is basically going to turn off a ton of people with this, even though everybody agrees it's a great premise in theory. And here's a few specific points on that because I think this is the crux of what it is. Now think about it this way. You can't have a town hall meaning rational discourse if the extremists are the loudest in the room and the algorithms are prioritizing their traffic. Studies have shown that anger and extremism generate the most traffic so it's in Twitter's best interest to have their AI continue to prioritize those posts. Facebook, for example, was caught doing this. And if we had a look into Twitter's AI, pretty much nobody doubts that we wouldn't see anything different. Meaning Twitter is doing this as well. The loudest voices, the angriest voices in the room get the traction, get the follows, get the likes, get the get the retweets, whatever it is. Now, on top of this, and here's another point, at least here in the United States, we are politically polarized. Nobody would disagree with that. So if Musk is expecting healthy and polite debate like an actual town hall meeting, that is currently a pipe dream. There's no way that's going to happen at the moment. Now, the perfect example of this is the horrific Paul Pelosi attack. I'm sure you heard about this. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, uh, her husband was home in San, uh, San Francisco where they live. Somebody broke in. He was attacked by with a hammer, etc., etc. Now, almost immediately, that day that that broke... Multiple conspiracy theories were already starting and swirling around about this attack. Musk himself, on that very day, tweeted demonstrably false information regarding this attack. And despite how these conspiracy theories, uh, you know, have been debunked by the FBI's written Miranda interview, they live on today in no small part because much of Musk's 100 million plus followers are not going to take the time to actually fact check the allegations. If Musk is seen as a trusted source on Twitter because of who he is, then he's breaking with his statements of wanting rational discourse. The rest of us will then see him more as an in, as the instigator in chief than anything else. And that's exactly what happened. There was a rumor that was put out by a local Fox affiliate that was taken and blown up by a uh, newspaper or I shouldn't say newspaper, a publication in California that has known for basically publishing repeatedly and demonstrably false information. Musk said, hmm, there must be more to this, posted that. That was later retracted by that local Fox affiliate as being demonstrably false. And here we are. And so this conspiracy theory continues to live on today. I see it still when Pelosi is Paul Pelosi is talked about. Oh, well, it must have been his boyfriend from Grindr or whatever it is when that is demonstrably false. So if if he is basically putting these things out there, he meaning Musk, that's a huge problem. Now, on top of this, and this is another point, 
is that Musk fancies himself and he calls himself a free speech absolutist. Now, few of us really think that this is going to be true and he really will let Twitter devolve into a horrendous platform like Gab. Gab, if you don't know, is a social media haven for neo-Nazis, the Klan, and other upstanding members of the asinine white uh, you know, extremist community. If he is going to let that devolve, then the calm and rational users are going to leave and all that's going to be left are the ones that are looking for a fight of some kind. Now, I sign up for all social media platforms when I hear about them. And within days of signing up for Gab, I had a Gab account. I was invited. I kid you not. I was invited to a neo-Nazi rally in upstate New York. And so I immediately closed my account there. Does anybody want those invites regularly on Twitter? I'm all for free speech, but understand that the consequence of absolutism is inevitably division. Musk will find that out very quickly if he decides to go that route. Now, on top of this, Musk has also killed the board of directors. The current CEO and CFO are now gone, not to mention other top-tier security professionals. They're C-level security and cybersecurity professionals. And now he says, or, or said, I should say, he's going to be the sole director and the, quote, Twitter complaint hotline operator, end quote, as well. And so what happens when he gets bored with Twitter and moves on to something else? The man has got more money than he knows what to do with, and so here we are. He's already losing that top talent because Twitter employees were quitting over what they saw as the hard work they've done into things like content moderation, simply being blown away by the stroke of a pen, meaning him signing the contract to buy the company, and then allowing life banned people like the former president, President Trump, back onto the platform, which is expected to happen soon. Everybody can agree that Trump is a polarizing figure, whether you love him or hate him. And oftentimes he is the loudest voice in the room. So you you might love him, you might hate him, but understand this is what we are talking about here. Outside of the top talent that quit of their own volition, thousands of employees were just terminated and what can only be called a purge. Now, I understand CEOs are always looking to streamline efficiency, though how on earth could Twitter executives, what's left of Twitter executives, review almost 4,000 resumes and performance statistics to make informed decisions in such a short period of time? The lawsuits have already started by terminated employees. Some terminated employees say that they were emailed like within 24 to 48 hours saying, oh, we, we didn't mean to fire you. Come on back. You have a job. But I think the final nail in the coffin, though, is the charging of the $8 fee to keep that blue checkmark verification on accounts. This is tantamount, essentially, to overcharging people that bring you business. Now, think about it this way. Think about it this way. If Brad Pitt were to suddenly start using a product that I sold while telling the world that he loved it and a ton of his fans were now my customers... I would be buying bad. I would be buying Brad Pitt like the nicest gift you can possibly think of. That dude would get a Ferrari from me or something like that. I would not send him a bill. Why would I say thank you, Brad Pitt, for sending me millions of customers? Now here's a bill for for more than 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 what everybody else is charging. When you normally would just be charged, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. If those celebrities, those top tier people, leave and move on to God forbid TikTok. 
then Twitter is going to be a ghost town of just extremists yelling at other extremists. Now, on top of that, offering this blue check mark for sale is a cybersecurity nightmare. What's stopping the deep pockets of a foreign government from simply buying a ton of $8 verified accounts and then pumping out whatever they want on those accounts? The one thing the blue check mark does on Twitter is create trust that basically whomever you're seeing you know that they they are who they say they are. This ensures that the message from, let's say, a well-known person is actually from a well-known person and not some fake account. Depending on the vetting process, which we now know is none, this could let a plethora of bots be trusted onto the general platform. And if that happens, the disinformation will be so pervasive we may never have a chance to recover. And we have now seen in the aftermath, because when I wrote this on November 9th, the blue checkmark system for $8 came online and anybody with eight bucks could get a blue checkmark. And we saw some insanely hilarious things happen. So Jesus Christ, an account literally called Jesus or Jesus Christ at Jesus Christ has a blue check mark, basically meaning this is the official count of Jesus. On top of that, other people made spoof accounts for famous athletes like LeBron James and then started making crazy statements like, oh, yes, I'm being traded from one team to the other, which caused a stir. We saw a fake uh, Eli Lilly account. This is the large pharmaceutical corporation, basically a fake Eli Lilly with a blue check mark that said we are proud to announce that insulin is now free from Eli Lilly. That tanked their stock. That made their executives, I kid you not, basically call frantically over to Twitter trying to get these things taken down. Because now, if you're looking at that and you're saying, oh my gosh, Eli Lilly, there's the blue check mark. This is confirmed. I now get my insulin for free. Insulin is expensive here in the United States. This is what we are talking about. This has been chaos. There has been no vetting. And Elon Musk, in order to see, to basically stem that, then put a separate gray check mark under the official account. So if I'm LeBron James or Eli Lilly or, you know, whoever, not Jesus, obviously, um, and, and I am that, I now have a blue check mark with a gray one. But if you're not paying attention to that, any LeBron James or Eli Lilly or even fake Elon Musk accounts were going around that they started suspending uh, are there. And they have been trying to suspend this, but they have not been able to keep up. So I can get an $8 blue check mark, and I'm going to go through that process. I actually, um, it was rolled out first to iPhones. I have a demo iPhone here that I use for testing things, and I have not been prompted to say, hey, Nick, pay $8 for this as they are slowly rolling this out. But when, when it happens, I am going to go ahead and get that just to see if there's any vetting. Did they take a driver's license from me? Did they validate that I am who I say I am? Or can anybody, meaning the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans, start buying these accounts? I've been spoofed before online, basically just given my public presence in cybersecurity. And so obviously this is a very deeply concerning thing for me. There could be another Nick Espinoza out there claiming to be a cybersecurity professional with a blue check mark saying things that I didn't say or making things up about me. You know, I am targeted by virtue of my job and my public presence. And so this is obviously a huge issue that we are going to see be pervasive. So yes, I think Twitter is going to die here. It's going to take a while, but if Musk keeps on the course that he's going, Twitter is not going to be just where civility goes to die. It will be where accurate information and rational discourse go to die as well. And that is your deep dive of the week.
Oh, and real quick, don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, basically your favorite social media platform. I'm either at Nick AESP or slash Nick Espinoza at any one of those. Come feel free to follow me. It's always a good time. I do daily content uh, on tech, on privacy, on cybersecurity. You'll be informed. I think it'll be interesting. So stick around and make sure to follow me. And thank you so much for tuning in this week. It was another fun show, and I think we covered a lot of really good stuff. And I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. It was a really good time, and I hope you keep tuning in. Thank you very much for listening to the Deep Dive Radio Show here with Nick Espinoza. And if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, absolutely anything, once again, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. And you can always send an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. Don't be shy. I love the feedback. We've been having a great time with the show. And as always, stay safe and stay online, everyone. Thanks for listening.